Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Shane's got me. All right. Hey, uh, my name's Nate. If we haven't met before, it's, it's good to be with you guys. I love you. been praying for you this week, and I, I'm really grateful to be able to open God's Word with you. So we'll be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you've got a Bible, start turning there now. Table of contents is your best friend, or grab an app that can help you get there if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Um, we've been going through 1 John for the last few weeks now, and we, we hit a promise in our passage today that caught my attention as I was prepping. I actually want to put it on the screen. Um, go ahead and throw that for me. Here it is. Different one. That's all right. That's from the Gospel of John, but we'll get there. All right, First John chapter 5, verse 12. I'm going to read this to you. This is what John said. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Someone say life. Here's the promise in this passage. There's life out there ready for you, and you may or may not have it. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of a promise and an anti-promise, right? I promise if you have Jesus, you're going to have life, but, but I also promise if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. So, do you have life? Some of you are like, well, I've been around church for a while. I'm pretty sure I got life. It kind of feels like one of those, like, old insults, like, get a life, right? Like, but, but as I was praying through this promise and thinking about it, um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he, he, did this, he did this thing that, that I think really applies here where he said, you've got a hunger in you and that hunger points to, points to something that satisfies the hunger. You get hungry for food because there's food made for your stomach. You get, you get thirsty for drink. That's kind of a hunger in you because there's drink to satisfy you. You're hungry for relationship because you're built for relationship. And I, I, think, I think you have a hunger in you for life, for real life. And you've been chasing that hunger through your career, maybe, or through your online dating profile, or through your kids and your home life, but you have a hunger in you for life. You were built to experience a real life. And that hunger stands behind a lot of the actions in you. And maybe you're not like philosophical or reflective or whatever. Maybe you never put it in those terms, but, but I think if we, if we sat together and kind of looked at the scope of your life, there have been a lot of decisions you've made or actions you've taken that have been driven by something you maybe couldn't quite put your finger on, but you were chasing life. And maybe you see it most clearly when, when you got the thing that you, were, you thought would give it to you and it didn't quite satisfy you, right? You got the promotion and then you realize like it's still just work. You reach the peak of your career and you, and you look towards retirement, you're like, is this all there is to it? You got that relationship and you realize you're still like empty and there's something in you that needs to be filled. I think this hunger for life stands behind some of the, the bleak statistics in our society behind, about divorce, suicide, midlife crisis. Even suicide is this desperate cry for life, a hunger being expressed. I think every, every person in here has a hunger for life. You were built to experience this real life, and the promise in our passage is it's, it's available to you. But, Doxa, let me be frank with you. As, as a Christian, I don't really struggle with doubt about, like, does God exist or is the Bible God's word? I struggle with doubt of, like, am I, am I really kind of experiencing what God has for me? And I kind of look at my disciplines or I look at my efforts. I'm like, I, is, there, is there some other level I'm supposed to be on as a Christian? Like there's something in, in me that's like, man, do I, do I have it? Can you relate to me there? 
Like you, you know the right answers in your head, but it doesn't seem to have landed in that, in that place of hunger in you sometimes. And so we go and we're like, all right, I got to read the right books on discipleship. I got to get more disciplined. I got to do this. I got to do that. All good things. But, but we start running this race trying to chase down an answer to our hunger. And, and I wonder if you've been running really hard and, and doing the things you thought you were supposed to do to be a good Christian or whatever. And, and you're kind of coming in this morning and realizing maybe it hasn't worked the way that you hoped it would. Or maybe you're not a Christian this morning because you're like, yeah, I've got a hunger and I, I don't really know people that have an answer to that. I don't know if this church thing's got it. A long time ago, I was talking to a guy about faith and, and this line caught me off guard. He's like, yeah, I tried Christianity. It didn't really work for me. What he was saying was he had a hunger to be satisfied and, and he, he was trying to do this Christian thing and it wasn't really working, so he's going to go look for something else. Maybe that's you this morning. Like you don't even really know why you're here. Like you don't really, you don't really kind of want to be associated with this church thing or whatever. You're not really sure what's going on, but you've got a hunger. And you're like, maybe, just maybe, maybe there's some kind of answer. Because I haven't found it anywhere else. This morning our passage is going to show us the answer, that this promise that whoever has the Son has life. Like what is this real life that you are hungry for, that God put a real hunger in you for, and how do we get it? All right? I think if we lean in and listen to God's word, you will actually find an answer that might be surprising, but a way better answer than aiming for the next big trip or big weekend or big promotion or, or big relationship or whatever. Way, way different than that answer because when we've been aiming for those things, we miss life along the way, haven't we? First John chapter 5. We're going to be in 1 through 12. Open up your Bibles. Look at the word with me. John is going to show us kind of three marks of having this life. Like how do you know you have it? Three marks that are going to be similar to what we've talked about through the whole book. The, these tests that John gave to kind of reassure his audience, he's repackaging, reframing them in the way that he's been doing, kind of coming back around and around, showing three marks of what it looks like to have this real life. And then he's going to take a hard right turn and show us how you get this life. Does that sound good? Yep, you ready? All right, let's go there. First John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Some will say believe. Believe is, is a major emphasis in Christianity, but it's, it hasn't been a major emphasis in John so far, in First John. He, he kind of has touched it a couple times, but he hasn't really focused down on it. And in this passage, he's going to dial in to believe what it means, what it's about. So we'll get there in a little bit. But he says something really curious here. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one from the beginning of the Bible, whoever believes that has been born of God. I don't know how many English classes you took or grammar classes, but if you look at the phrase, like, has been, it's not saying like you're a has-been, washed up, whatever. It's like, it's a past tense, right? Something happened to you in the past that shows up in the fact that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that interesting? He's saying like, okay, if you're breathing in the room this morning, it's because you have been born at some point, right? Breathing is evidence that you are alive. You can't look at a corpse and say, hey, start breathing and somehow you'll come to life. But if you're breathing this morning, which I hope you are, if you're not, like, take a breath, okay? If you're breathing this morning, you were born at some point. He's saying if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, it's because you've been born of God. Something happened to you to make that belief real and reasonable to you. As far as born of God, John didn't make that up. He actually picked it up from Jesus, right? He lived with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. And if you're familiar with the, the account that he gave of Jesus' life and ministry, 
there's this beautiful chapter, John chapter 3, where we get like John 3.16, right? Jesus is having a debate with a religious guy who knows a lot of the right answers, but he's like, Jesus, you've got something I don't have. And Jesus tells this guy, you need to be born again. And he kind of plays it off. He's like, whatever, how am I supposed to go into my mother's womb? That's ridiculous, Jesus, you're crazy. But Jesus doubles down. He's like, no, no, you need to be born again if you want into the life God has for you, the kingdom of God. John says there's something about this born again thing that's connected to, to what you think about Jesus currently today. And now again, we'll get into that a little bit more, but, but he's already given us this first mark. It says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. This first mark is, is a love for God and his people. It's similar to the test that we saw last week. Someone say love. The word he uses here for love is not a love that's, that's emotional necessarily, like, oh, I just can't help but loving people. It's not even just like a romantic love. It's a love of the will. It's based on this word agape. If you've been around church, you've heard that word before. The way we talked about it last week when we said God is love is, is you can't separate God's love from his other attributes. He's holy, he is just, he is true, and he's love at the same time. It's a holy love, a just love. And John is saying, okay, if, if you've got this kind of life, it overflows in love for God and his people. But now, who does it say we love? It says, we love the Father and whoever has been born of him. We love his kids. It's talking about Christians loving other Christians. I don't know about you, but I think it can be easier sometimes to like give people a break when they're not a Christian and like love them. And then you show up around other Christians and you're like, yeah, but you should know better, right? Like, come on, you knuckleheads. Like, we're reading the same book. Like, you should know better. I I can find it easier to love my neighbors who aren't Christians. And then I can show up around a group of Christians and find myself more judgmental and frustrated and annoyed. Is that just me? (laughs) Thank you. Nick's back. Love you, buddy. Yeah, me and Nick are judging the rest of you. And, and, and let's be honest, maybe this morning when you, when you were like late coming in the building because of where someone else parked or, or you were getting your coffee and there was someone else yakking it up or whatever, or someone else sat in your seat, maybe you have a hard time loving Christians too. But the mark here of this true life is an overflow of, of love, again, not just for people generally or the idea of people, but practically for other Christians. It's a mark of that real love in you, or that life overwhelming, overflowing in you. So do you love other Christians? And do you love other Christians not just like an emotional thing, but in action practically? Are you part of a local church? Like, are you putting yourself in a place to even be able to know if you love other Christians? I'm not saying do you go to a church, but are you vitally tied in with other people to know actually how they need love? Because this morning, if you are not part of Doxa or another local church, you're not even showing up for the test, let alone passing it. He's not saying love the idea of people. He's saying the people sitting next to you, the people around you, the people in your connection group, loving them practically, intentionally, tangibly. That's the first mark of life. Do you love other Christians? Look at verses two and three. We'll see the second mark. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Like, how do you know if you're doing that? These marks are gonna kind of work together in the way that John's been cycling through and, and, and kind of building up these ideas. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Someone say obey. Yeah, that one's like harder to get you guys to say sometimes. That's all right. Verse three, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments his commandments are not burdensome. 
I love getting you guys to talk. I love getting you guys to like work with me in this. So if you want to say amen at any point, go for it. Um, I, I could read this probably 10 times out of 10, and I don't know if I'll get a single amen, right? Obey God more. Look at his commands. Okay, Larry, stop. Yeah. All right. Loving the children of God and loving God is tied to obeying God. One of the marks of this life overflowing from you is a life of obedience. How's that word obedience sit with you? Like when was the last time someone told you to obey? Treating you like a child. I mean, maybe it's a father treating you like a child. Obedience is not something that sits well often with our version of Christianity. Like, Jesus saved me from hell. He saved me to get a good life. He saved me for all these things. But did he save me to, to obey commandments? Sounds a little Old Testament, doesn't it? And, and, and let me be clear. It's not saying, hey, every time you read like a command about like slaughtering a lamb or, or you know, don't wear clothes of two different kinds or whatever, like obey every one of those. But he is saying there's an orientation, there's a, a trajectory of your heart where you look at God and his ways at, and your heart bends more towards going, okay, I, I think I want more of him. One of the, the marks of having life in God is obeying him. And again in verse three he says, his commandments are not burdensome. Something changes in your perspective when you have this life where you don't just look at God's laws or rules or, or his character and go, it's a burden I'm, I'm crushed under. But the orientation of your life becomes more joy and freedom to obey God. Do you obey God? Is obedience a part of the makeup of your Christianity or is that something for legalists out there? He's not saying you have to like obey everything perfectly because there was one person who perfectly obeyed God and, and we killed him. But he's saying the direction that your life takes is more obedience more closeness with God through, through listening to his voice and responding. Do you obey God more now than you did a year ago? Has your perspective on, on his plans for you changed more in the last five years? Or is it still a duty and a drudgery to try to walk with him? Obedience and your perspective on God's commandments is one of the marks of this real life. The first mark is loving God and his people. It's connected. And then the second mark is obeying God. That's how you know you have this life. Look at the third mark, verses four and five. He says, everyone who has been born of God, there's that phrase again, they overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This word overcome has, has, has come up in John's gospel again, and, and Jesus, in his final discourse that John recorded, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. When he talks about the world here, he's talking about the systems, the view, the structure, the instincts in our world that's running away from God. And there's so many different like, systems in our world that are working or perspectives or tools or whatever to try to live the good life, to try to find hope and peace and heaven here on earth. They don't even all agree, but John is saying the one thing they agree on is they say, God is not the answer. Jesus is not the answer. There's something else. And as I was studying this and praying about it, this picture came to mind of like, like a current, like pushing and rushing. It's not like unique to me. I didn't come up with that. But, but he's saying we stand in a current pushing away from God. And, and the streams of the current don't even have to fully agree, but they agree on the answer not being God. It's something else. 
It could be like radical Islam or like the most chill suburban Buddhism you've ever come across, but it all is saying God is not the answer, something else is. Your career, relationship, your hobbies, whatever, something else is the answer. That's the world. It's a view, a perspective, an instinct to run from God. He's saying everyone who's been bored of God overcomes the world. Someone say overcome. When you think of overcoming the world, what do you think of? It's like a major political victory, right? That's how we overcome the world. Finally, the right right person gets in office, the right law comes about, then we overcome the world. Or maybe you think of like a social evil being conquered, right? No more hunger, no more homelessness. Then we've overcome the, the evil in this world. But John was writing to a group of people that didn't have social power, They didn't have political access. In fact, they were probably persecuted. They had watched their friends walk away from the faith, and John himself was going to be sent into exile by the empire. Their version of overcoming didn't look like our version of overcoming. In fact, it looked a lot more like standing steady and strong against the current pushing them. The victory that has overcome the world in verse 4 is our faith. It's standing in a current and not being pushed over or thrown around, not falling back into the old ways of thinking or dealing with people, and then just taking one step of faith at a time. This kind of overcoming is not dramatic or, or, or big and glorious on a national stage, although Christians throughout history have been vitally involved in, in fighting against evil and injustice, but the way that we do it looks a lot more like Jesus saying the kingdom coming life to life, heart to heart, like a little bit of yeast spreading through dough. So let me ask you, in your life, are you overcoming? Do you treat your problems with a different set of tools than than the people around you? Do you have a different worldview and a different perspective on people and their problems and the solutions than everyone else around you? Or, Or do you actually look a lot like what any talking head on the news will tell you, what any politician will tell you the answers are, what the latest TikTok will tell you about how to solve someone's problems. Are you standing against the current or are you being pushed around? The three marks he gives us of this real life, the the diagnosis for your heart, how do you know if you have this life? He says, you love God and his people, love. You obey God's commandments and you overcome the world by standing firm in your faith. It's kind of this this repackaging and rethinking of the test that he's given us of faith throughout the whole book. So here's what happened in my heart as I kind of read through these and examined these. I kind of got a little freaked out, right? Like I'm not overcoming as much as I thought I should. I don't know if I love as much as I really should. And and, and this thing that happens when when I doubt in my faith, it started happening with this where it's like, man, I, I just need to work harder. Like I need to do better. I've got a list. I've got commands. I've got to start obeying harder. I've got, I got to do this thing. And maybe you've treated Christianity like that. I come across these things and and I get a little freaked out about what's going on in me and so I'm just gonna go charge off and try to conquer my demons, my faults, my flaws. But that, that falls into the same pattern we've been in where we aim for life and the answer and we miss it along the way. See, there's a way that you can aim for something and by aiming for that thing, totally miss it. You can aim for life and the fact that you're aiming for life itself, you can miss life along the way. That's not how you solve this hunger, unlike so many others. 
If I got a hunger, I aim for Taco Bell and God satisfies me in that. But if I aim for life anywhere else, I'm going to miss it. He's been dropping the hints of this answer over and over. And now he's going to take a hard right turn in this passage and show us actually how do you come up with this life? How do you find this life? So we're going to get to the word believe. Someone say believe again. When was the last time you used the word believe? We use believe all kinds of ways, and so it's confusing when we come up with it in the Bible. People use believe for big theological concepts, right? Do you believe in, in God's sovereignty and Calvinism and Arminianism and whatever? We use believe for like hot button issues like who do you believe should be our next president? But we also use believe in, in really like small ways. The last time the, the uh, well, the World Cup is happening this, this winter. I don't know if you guys are soccer fans. Um, but the last time the U.S. men were in the World Cup, there was this chant that, that the fans had. They said, I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. And if you know anything about men's soccer in America, we did not win, okay? <laughs> no, no amount of chanting, no amount of cheering, no amount of people showing up. That belief was like, I really hope that we will win. I really wish that we would win. Maybe, maybe that's been the kind of belief you've had with faith. Like, I believe in God. I hope, <laughs> I hope he's there for me. I believe in God. Like, I wish he would show up a little bit more. The kind of belief he's got here is very, very different. And, and he's going to take a hard right turn in our text that when I was reading this, I was kind of like, this is one of those texts that's like, man, I wish someone would explain this to me. And I thought, oh, no. All right. I've got to explain this to people. Here we go. Starting in verses 6 through 8, he's going to make a, an argument that makes a lot of sense to a Hebrew person. We're going to unpack it in a sec, but it's, it's wrapped up in this idea of belief. He's unpacking it for us. So in, in verses 4 and 5, he said, our faith has overcome, and the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and he kind of double-clicks that and unpacks this idea. Look at verse 6. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. What is he saying here? Right? He's talking about these marks of your faith. And he's like, all right, there's a bunch of water and blood and what, whatever. He, he's got this, this mindset from his Hebrew background that you need the evidence of two or three witnesses for anything to be true. He's like, you want witnesses? You want evidence that this life is true? This stuff I've been talking about that Jesus is worth it? Let me give them to you. Water, blood, and the spirit. What does he mean there? When he says water, he's talking about Jesus' baptism. And when John wrote his account of Jesus' life, he does this crazy thing where he starts with this beautiful theological poetry of who God is. He existed before time. He is God and he was with God. The Trinity is there. And then, dude, he skips right over Christmas. Like he doesn't care about the nativity and any of that. He skips right over Christmas and he goes straight to Jesus' baptism. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if we only had John's gospel, we wouldn't have any of the wise men, any of that stuff, because he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you know he was born, but he was baptized. Get there. Jesus' baptism is significant for John because it's proof that Jesus didn't just kind of like descend out of heaven and give a message and leave again. He wasn't just this disembodied spiritual teacher, whatever, but he, he came in flesh and he walked perfectly according to the plan of God, promised all the way back starting in Genesis 3. Jesus' baptism is proof, according to John, that, that Jesus' life and ministry meant something. He identified with John the Baptist's message. He came in a real physical body, and he proclaimed the kingdom, walking as God in flesh, fully God, fully man. 
And every account of Jesus' life, his baptism is significant because that kicks off his ministry. The father looks at the son in that moment and says, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. The spirit descends on him to empower him for ministry the next three years. Jesus' baptism is a testimony of who he is. God in flesh to walk through the troubles and struggles and trials that we have. The first to testify is the water, Jesus' baptism. Then then the second is blood, Jesus' death on the cross for us. He didn't just come as the ultimate religious teacher that challenged and confronted political structures and religious structures and all of this that, that got to people's hearts. He came as a king to lay down his crown for his people and to be killed. You don't kill just a nice religious guy. You kill someone who radically upends everything you believe. They killed Jesus because he walked perfectly, pointing to this life and told them, hey, you might not have it by by your hard work and your effort and your power. He died as the final sacrifice, the complete payment for sin, the penalty done away with through his blood, the only perfect sacrifice. And John talks earlier in this about him being a propitiation, the, the, the sacrifice that takes away God's wrath, God's just wrath against sin. Jesus never deserved that wrath and he took it on the cross. In his death and his resurrection, conquering sin, that's a testimony. He didn't just come to be a good religious teacher to give you more rules for life. He came to deal with your sin. And the third that testifies is the Spirit. The Spirit who empowered Jesus to do ministry. The Spirit who showed up at Pentecost to fill every one of his followers in a way that had never happened in history before. The Spirit that testifies over and over to the truth of who God is. Who Jesus is, God in flesh. Look at verse 9. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. This is the testimony of God that he bore concerning his Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all testifying about who Jesus is, the answer to the hunger that you have. The way to real life. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. The Spirit is doing something in everyone who believes, pointing to Jesus. But whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So again, he's dropping this word believe over and over and over again. And when he says believe, he's not saying a blind leap of faith. He's not saying, hey, hey, just trust me on this, whatever, and jump into it and start doing this. He's saying, actually, there are historical facts standing behind everything that we're saying. He walked with God, with God in flesh. He walked with Jesus. John heard him talk. He saw him eat. He saw him love people. He saw him heal people. And he watched him die. And he watched him come to life. To testify by the scars in his hands on his body that he was alive again. But, but what he's saying here is the Spirit does something in you where he takes this from being just facts you know Jesus died on the cross for sins to being truth alive in you. Jesus died for my sins. He, he died to be the Savior of the world, taking that truth and moving it towards he died to be my Savior. He didn't just live a perfect life as an example, but he lived a perfect life that I would receive life. That's the testimony of the Spirit, making, making these marks of life real in us and making the life of Jesus more than a fact on paper, but, but a force that changes you from the inside out. 
Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Someone say in. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This life with God is vitally tied and connected to the person of Jesus. You can't separate the life from the person. You can't accomplish or achieve or receive this life anywhere else except through Jesus. You can't separate it from him. If you have the son, you have life. Now listen to me, if you just aim for life and you don't have the son, you miss it completely. Let me put it this way, I think we got it on the screen. Faith in Jesus produces life with Jesus. Putting your trust and your hope in Jesus to be everything he said he was actually begins to produce this life in you. You don't go out and find it somewhere else. You find it in him. You don't achieve it through your good religious effort. You receive it from him. You don't earn it from trying hard enough to please God or obey him or love people. You accept it from him. When you have Jesus, you have life now and forever. If you aim for life, you're going to miss it. But if you aim for Jesus, you get life along the way. If you're aiming to try to experience this, the, the satisfaction of this hunger that's been, that's been influencing so many of your decisions and, and, and changing your emotions and messing you up and, and making you feel disillusioned and empty, if you aim to just try to satisfy that hunger, there will never be a vacation good enough or a position lofty enough or a paycheck big enough or a relationship romantic enough to satisfy that thing in you. It won't work. But if you aim for Jesus, getting to know him and enjoy him and experience him, you'll find that life along the way. As I was studying this text and and trying to prep and come up with an application, I was really tempted. I wanted to be like um, really clever for you guys, right? I wanted some application that would really like catch you off guard and go, wow, man, like Nate's really smart when he comes to applications, which is not true. Because here's the deal. Here's the application. Like get with Jesus, Grow your faith in Jesus by just being with him. And God gave us very simple, very clear ways of getting around him and getting with him. He gave us guaranteed places of encountering him. Whether you feel it or not, here's some guaranteed places of encounter with God. The Bible. Reading it to meet with him, not just try to to, to please him or or prove something to him or whatever, but, but a guaranteed place of encounter is reading your Bible. Prayer. Again, whether you feel it or not, God listens when we pray and he actually is moving through our prayers and working through our prayers. Prayer. Gathering with other believers like this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Even if you walk away and go like, ah, they didn't play my favorite worship song and yeah, Nate was all right, whatever. He didn't have a cool application and whatever. And he tried to make me say stuff I wasn't gonna say, but that's okay. Like this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Even if you are not feeling it, God has said he will meet his people here. Or worship. God inhabits the praises of his people when we worship. He says he will meet us there. To be frank, it, it's really not that complicated, is it? But when that, that hunger inside of you for life becomes all-consuming, you can get it twisted around and chase the hunger and, and the aim of life rather than chasing the person that had life the whole time for you, Jesus. So listen to me. Maybe you're, you're a Christian this morning. You've been struggling. You've been doubting. 
you've been frustrated, and as you've looked at these marks of life, you look at yourself and you go, I, I'm just not living up to it. And the instinct in your heart has been, I just need to try harder and do better and work more, and then somehow I'll feel something. If I just work my way out of this. Would you just, would you just slow down for a minute? Like there's a beautiful place for discipline in the Christian life for sure, but it comes after you stopping and looking back at Jesus. You didn't obey your way into the kingdom of God. You weren't a corpse that somehow taught yourself to breathe. Life was given to you through Jesus. Would you just slow down in your fears and your worries and that knot of anxiety in your stomach? And would you look back at Jesus? He lived a righteous life that you could never live, but his life is yours now because you're with him. You're in him. He, he has the pleasure of the Father as the only son to walk perfectly with him, but now, because you're with him, the Father's pleased with you. He loves you. You're his kid. He's not waiting for you to be good enough. He gave you a seat at the table. Look back at Jesus. Look at the nail scars in his hands and feet to prove to your heart that it's finished. You don't have to try to earn something from God. You're being given it by God through Jesus. Would you look at him? Would you look at the father and let him treat you like his kid? And maybe you have a jacked up view of dads, but, but he is a good father. He's not a tyrant in the sky. He's not a bad boss. He's a father that loves you, that, that gave his only son so that you could be brought to the family. And then ask him whatever he has for you. Maybe there's a step of obedience you need to take. Okay, it's not burdensome because he loves you already. He's not waiting to love you until you obey. Maybe there's a conviction that he's been laying on your heart that you've been, you've been wrestling with and confused about and ignoring. Would you listen to him because he loves you and let him produce life in you as you obey him? But if you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling, would you just slow down and look back at Jesus? And then after you look at him, let him tell you how to obey and how to walk. Now maybe this morning you, you hear these marks and you've been trying to do this whole thing outside in the whole time. You've been going, okay, if I, if I just show up for church or read my Bible or give or serve or whatever, then I'll have that life. You've been trying to work it outside in when the whole time it's been inside out. Listen to me, no one is born a Christian. I don't care if your family has gone to church for how many generations. I don't care if you've never missed a Sunday. You, you are not born a Christian. You're born again a Christian. So let me ask you, have you been born again? Or have you been trying to hold up the testimony of your hard work and your best effort and your good intentions up to God rather than letting the testimony of the water and the blood and the spirit testify to you? Would you stop trying to prove to God that you deserve to be in his kingdom? Would you stop trying to prove to the people around you that you're a good enough Christian with the right answers? Would you just stop and look at Jesus? Because one way to hate Christianity is to try really hard to play the game of Christianity and miss Jesus. That's a way to burn yourself out and, and to end up saying, hey, it didn't work for me. But would you trust him today to be enough for you? Because you are not enough. Would you trust him today to, to actually have paid for your sins? that his blood was enough and he's not waiting for you to, to again earn his grace or to, to pay him back or to somehow add something to it, would you just stop it and trust him? That's what belief is. Looking at who he is and, and what he did for you and saying, okay, I, I'm in. You've got me and I don't, I don't have me. I never did in the first place. 
And would you ask him to satisfy the hunger that has been in you this whole time? And if you're not a Christian this morning, there's a reason you're here. Again, maybe, maybe you haven't put the words to it, but there's a hunger inside of you that has been controlling you and dominating your life. And maybe you've tried to numb that out with alcohol or with social media or, or with relationships or whatever, but that hunger is still in you. You know it. Let's be honest. You are hungry for real life, and God put that hunger in you to draw you to him. Would you surrender to him today? And you might not even know really what that looks like, but would you look at Jesus and just say, okay, Jesus, I need to trust you today that, that your blood speaks a better word than my effort, that you actually love me even though I'm not really that lovable, and that you came in flesh to live a life I couldn't and die a death I should have, and you rose to life to give me life with you. Would you look at him and trust him today? Docs, I think the promise of this passage should, should wreck us. That there is real life that we were made for and that God is offering it to us over and over. But again, you can't aim at life and get it. You aim at Jesus and you get life along the way. What would happen if we were a church full of people that were full of life? What would happen in your marriage if you had more and more and more life to give rather than trying to take life? What would happen in our, in our city and in our community if we were known as a group of people that had life overflowing from us? I think this is the kind of church people would show up to and go, God is among them. There, there is a satisfaction and an answer that we don't have. It would look a lot like John and his friends who said, hey, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether I'm naked or whether I'm clothed, whether I'm hungry or full, I'm okay. He's got me and I've got him. I have life. I think that's what your neighbors need to see and what your kids need to see. I think that's what our city needs to see. And thank God that Jesus is offering it to you today. Let's pray and invite him to help us experience it more. Jesus, I confess with my friends here that I get it mixed up. I aim for life and I miss life so often along the way. I aim to, to work hard enough to be worthy of your love or, or to just obey my way into your love and you've been offering it to us the whole time. Faith in you, Jesus, produces this life in us. We can't find it anywhere else. So this morning, would you humble us with how simple you've made this? But would you spur us on to pursue you, Jesus, more and more? And in that process, would you make us a people full of life? Life to give, life to overflow to the city and the people around us where you've put us. We trust you, Jesus. We praise in your name. Amen.